Ladies and gentlemen, the Brit Pack is back. It's Simon Head from Rochester in the UK and Chamat Sandu from Toronto in Canada. We've been talking for ages about sports documentaries, so we might as well roll straight in. Sandu, we have both been absolutely gripped to this all or nothing uh, Amazon Prime documentary that dropped midnight last night UK time, or midnight, yeah, midnight last night UK time. Um, we've both watched the first two episodes. Um, I'm sure a load of people out there have been watching the, the NFL versions of this for, for years. Now we've, we've had a Manchester City one. Now we've got a Spurs one. You're a Spurs fan. You must be loving this. Oh, I'm, I'm loving it, Simon. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I've been aware of the All or Nothing franchise with uh, Manchester City is the one that kind of caught my eye over the last couple of years. But I never really kind of brought myself around to actually wanting to watch it, even though in general I love sports documentaries. I just don't know what it was. Like, do I want to see the behind the scenes of Man City basically winning everything <laughs> right over there the period of time that they probably were being filmed? Uh, it would probably make me feel shit as a Spurs fan just to kind of watch that, right? So... I didn't watch that and then I kind of was like kind of dreading watching this to be honest with you because I know it's you know everything's being filmed over the time period of Pochettino being sacked Jose Mourinho coming in but I tell you what after just watching two episodes a I'm gripped b it's just fascinating to see the behind the scenes warts and all of the club that I love this is my football club. I'm a Spurs fan. I used to work there for about three or four years as a steward, right? Uh, at the old ground at White Hart Lane. And to see the transformation, to see kind of Daniel Levy, Jose Mourinho, Pochettino, the players swearing and just kind of being themselves and not being so polished in front of like Sky Sports or BT Sport or Match of the Day interviews and, and all the rest of it. It's refreshing. It humanizes them. And, and it's smart because come to think of what all or nothing does it kind of almost guarantees an, an inbuilt audience like i wasn't really interested in watching the man city all or nothing or any i wasn't even aware that there was kind of like nfl versions of this show but tottenham hotspur yeah i'm gonna watch that and i'm sure every spurs fan around the world will be tuning in so it's a very smart and strategic move by uh, amazon prime video to commission uh, a docu-series like this and yeah two episodes in i'm loving what i'm seeing i think it's very well done very polished tom hardy's narrating it nice touch there and yeah i can't wait to kind of get through the rest of the show i think i'm gonna end up binge watching it this week i think it's gonna be <laughs> mad i think they're dropping it in like three episode chunks over the course of the next week or two but yeah they've done five nfl seasons of it they've done the cardinals the rams the cowboys the panthers and the eagles from last season they've done college football They've done Man City and now they're doing Spurs. They've done a Brazilian national soccer team as well, Sandu. So that's probably be quite interesting. And they've done, they've done the New Zealand All Blacks, which is one I really want to get into. But just thinking about it, how interesting would an all or nothing American top team be? How much would how how interesting would an all or nothing Sanford MMA, you know, the hard knocks 365 guys? One of those big gyms where they've got a load of guys, elite level. People coming in and out, title fights, people preparing for fights, falling through, dealing with the COVID pandemic. That would be absolutely fascinating. And maybe that's the next step. That's the next thing we need to see, whether it be the UFC cameras. Ideally, not the UFC cameras. Ideally, it'd be someone completely independent like Amazon. Get in there. Go to someone like Sanford MMA. 
You know, you got Kamara Usman, UFC champion. You got Ong Lauren Song, one championship champion, and a whole host of other world class strikers in that gym. Or ATT, which is probably the biggest, most famous uh, gym in MMA right now. So that would be fascinating. But let's get things on to present day. Let's get things on to what's going on right now. And, you know, we had uh, we had our latest serving from the UFC Apex on Saturday night. And we said it before we went on air, Sandu. If we're being critical, what the best show? You know, I mean, the first four fights... We had four submission finishes in a row, and it's like, wow, this is amazing. You know, we're getting into record-breaking territory here. And then after Alex Caceres submitted uh, Austin Springer in the fourth fight of the night, it was just unanimous decisions for the rest of the night. And, uh, you know, there were some good fights in there. Impa Kasanganai got a good win on his debut. Ricardo Lamas and Bill Algio had a great fight to kick off the main card. But I don't know. I just wanted... I'd hope for a little bit more... um, I guess that's what happens when you've got competitive matchups in the UFC. These fights do sometimes go the distance. Yeah, I don't think it would be unfair to say this is probably the most subpar UFC event experience of the year so far. And I say that with an asterisk because, look, it, we are dealing with a global pandemic. It's hard to get fight, you know, fighters you know, that you want uh, matched up in the country. And these aren't typical fight nights these are these are these are pandemic era fight nights you know so they're not always going to have the rock stars the marquee names and, and all the rest of it and i actually picked things up i was on shift for bt sport and so i actually picked things up uh with the sean brady christian aguilera fight and i was aware of the the previous two results uh poliana viana submitting emily whitmire and mallory martin submitting hannah cyphers but I wasn't actually watching. I was kind of still doing my bits and pieces, getting ready for the BT Sports Shift. And like you said, it started off great. I thought, great, this is two submissions on the uh, the, the televised broadcast version of, of the of the prelims. And just prior to that, we had a couple of submissions on the fight night uh, fight pass uh, portion of the card. And I thought, okay, here we go. Is this going to be one of those nights where it's trending like with finishes across the board? And then and then we got decisions. And we got decisions. No controversy really. You couldn't even say this was super competitive or a split decision here or it was fairly one-sided across the board and i guess the two big results and that's what we need to talk about more than anything else is less about the performances more about the results that are coming out of this event is neil magny defeating robbie lawler and alexander rakic defeating anthony smith both have certain levels i guess of re- repercussions and i guess let's just start off with co-main event Simon Neil Magny defeating Robbie Lawler that's Robbie Lawler's fourth loss in a row and for me he just doesn't have the ability to compete with the top 10 top 15 guys anymore I don't think you know it's not as if he's getting brutally knocked out or submitted it's just in those exchanges with someone that's younger um, that perhaps is catching Robbie Lawler at the tail end of his career, the matchups aren't going to favor him too much. Now, if, if, you, if you're going to match up Robbie Lawler with someone that's, you know, had equal amount of mileage as him, someone in his, in a, in his peer group, in, a, in his uh, age class, then perhaps that could be a little bit more competitive. But as things currently stand, if Robbie Lawler can, you know, wants to continue to fight, the, the UFC matchmakers need to throw him a bone here. They need to do him a solid favor. And... It's going to be one of those tricky situations where do they do the UFC keep Robbie Lawler around? Do they book him again? 
And what if he loses again? That'd be five losses in a row. That'd be pretty, um, pretty sad way to kind of exit the, the top level of the sport. So I, I think a lot of soul searching needs to be done both on the UFC's part and Robbie Lawler's part as well with regards to if he can still cut it at the very top level. Now the flip side, great win for Neil Magny. This was a signature win on his resume prior to this win. The only other big name on his resume that I think counts for something was Carlos Condit. Uh, a, a former interim welterweight champion and so for Neil Magny this is now three wins in a row he's got some momentum going and uh, I'd look to him to fight uh, someone uh, in the top 10 I saw Jeff Neil uh, call him out I'd love to see that uh, fight happen um, so yeah so th those are my kind of you know main takeaways from that co-main event Simon but what did you think of Neil Magny's win over Robbie Lawler? I mean Magny very, very rarely disappoints you with his performance. You know what you're going to get from him. I need to preface all of this by saying that I predicted that Robbie Lawler would win this fight. So make of that what you will. Got it totally wrong. But Magny gave us what we expected from Neil Magny. And the big question going in was, can Robbie Lawler match it? The old Robbie Lawler, I think, would have beaten Neil Magny. I think he would have had that little extra bit of explosiveness you know and I think it just seemed like that that wasn't quite there um and uh you know Magni Magni did what Magni does he's a very very hard man to beat he's well-rounded he's got excellent wrestling he's big for 170 pounds as well he's big range he's got good reach he's using his reach a lot better than he used to when he was uh earlier on in his career as well um and I think he's got a level of confidence now that he can go all the way at 170 pounds and be a real problem at the sharp end of the division. He, the problem that he has is that he's such a nice guy that he doesn't, he doesn't have that, that bit of nastiness in his personality, or at least it doesn't come across so that it's hard for him to beef with anybody because he's just such a stand up guy. Um, but his performances are undeniable. You know, as you say, he's, he's on a win streak now. Um, Lee Jing Liang, who, who was on a bit of a run before he fought, um, before he fought Magni, Rocco Martin, who is a dangerous man for anybody at 170, and now Robbie Lawler, three in a row, five out of his last six. You know he's a contender, so he needs to be he needs to be uh, punching up now and, and looking at someone in that top ten, as you say. As for Robbie Lawler, well, four losses in a row, but before we write his career obituary, let's take a look at who he lost to. Rafael Dos Anjos, former UFC lightweight champion. Ben Askren, former Bellator and one welterweight champion. And a controversial loss at that. Colby Covington, former interim champion. Probably the, you know, the, the toughest opponent you can go up against if you're going to go the full distance in a UFC welterweight fight. His cardio is insane. And then obviously Magny, who is a tough out for anybody in that division. So he's not losing to Muggs, but he is losing. And he's been right up there at the top for so, so long. And I wonder what that knockout loss to Tyron Woodley actually did to him. Because he's only won one fight since then. He took a year off uh, after losing that fight to Woodley. Beat Cowboy Cerrone. Um, and then was off. he fought Rafael dos Anjos. He had another layoff. And now he's come back and he's lost another three. You talk about throwing him a bone and what do you do with him? You know, if they keep him around. And honestly, I don't see why they wouldn't keep him around for at least one more. There's a fight to me that absolutely screams out for Robbie Law here. Put him in there with Platinum Mike Perry. Let's have Robbie Lawler and Mike Perry. I called for this fight about 18 months ago, to be honest. But um, I think it's even more relevant now. I mean, Mike Perry, 
very controversial. Obviously, he's had some he's had some uh, issues away from the cage in, in in recent weeks. But he needs an opponent. But his problem is he can't win enough fights consistently. So give him a name who's on the downslide. If he beats Robbie Lawler, then he's got the opportunity to fight somebody who's in that in that rank bracket. But Robbie Lawler right now, he needs to fight someone who can bring the dog out of him. Someone who can bring that fighting, that fighting edge out of him. The thing that we know we always get when we find a, you know Robbie Lawler at his best. If if he can't do that against Platinum Mike Perry, then maybe that is the sort of the time to say, okay, maybe he needs to reassess things. But um, yeah, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to write him off just yet. Um, I don't think he's necessarily a leading contender at 170 pounds right now, but I think he's still he's still someone who can put on entertaining fights and beat the vast majority of welterweight fighters in the UFC. It's just he's in there with the best of the best, and the best of the best are better than he is right now. So um, it's a tough out for uh, for ruthless Robbie Lawler, Neil Magny. Let's take a look at these UFC rankings. I don't think they've updated since since uh, since the weekend, but you take a look. I mean, I think he went into the weekend. Th- Ranked fourteenth, Lawler was thirteenth, so obviously there'll be a little ranking swap there. But looking above, Jeff Neal, I think they've tried to make that fight before, uh, the Jeff Neal fight. That would make a lot of sense. Um, but I mean, even someone like Michael Chiesa, Damian Meyer, you know, he could maybe bat that far up the order and, and see if he can get himself a fight with either of those guys as well. Um, it's a hard one for someone like Chiesa to take. Looking at someone ranked significantly lower than him, he needs to be looking up. Someone like Damian Meyer, though, might be amenable to it. I mean, he's a classy guy. Neil Magny's a classy guy. It's a fight that they don't necessarily need to build up with any artificial hatred or anything. It's just two classy individuals uh, who are still very, very dangerous at 170. So maybe that's an option. But yeah, I think the Jeff Neil fight for Magny makes a lot of sense. I don't know whether it does for Jeff Neil. I think he needs to be fighting higher up the order as well. It's a tough one, but hey, the matchmakers are... You know, they get paid the big bucks to book these fights and uh, Neil Magny needs to be getting himself a top 10 opponent next, I think. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. Uh, I think I love the Jeff Neil fight. I think that makes uh, the world of sense. And then just going back to Robbie Lawler, yeah. I wouldn't mind Mike Perry. It, I think I'll just feel so sad if Mike Perry was to destroy Robbie Lawler. It would just break my heart. I mean, Robbie Lawler, he, he's the kind of fighter that we all have a special place in our heart for, just given what he's given to the sport right and so you you'd like to see someone like him try you know go out on top you know with, with a with a win or two right but such is life and such is combat sports you know it doesn't always work out and most of the time it doesn't ever work out like that i saw a few suggestions of perhaps robbie lawler fighting addison silver obviously robbie lawler has fought at middleweight before and uh, honestly i actually i actually like that a lot unfortunately anderson silver's already booked he's fighting uriah hall and according to ufc president dana white that's going to be his final fight, with, you know, with the promotion um, or perhaps period in his in his career, uh, but th- th- that's the kind of name, that's the kind of age group I'd like to see Robbie Lawler fight, uh, just so that he can be a little bit more competitive, and and also, you know, I don't typically like legends fights, quote unquote, but that's probably as close to a legend versus legend you're going to get uh, in the UFC. So we'll see what happens, but yeah, uh, a tough night for, for Robbie Lawler. Um, just could have got it done, and, and a great night for Neil Magny, uh, who has yet again another big signature win on his resume, and that kind of led us into the main event—a uh, three-round main event. We don't, you know, see, I haven't seen that in a long, 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 long time. And 
Alexander Rakic got it done with relative ease against Anthony Lionheart-Smith. And he got the unanimous decision victory. Post-fight, Simon, he was calling for a title shot. He said he wants the winner of Dominic Reyes versus Jan Blahovic. And I'm sorry to say, Mr. Rakic, I just don't think you're going to get the title shot next for a few different reasons. Uh, number one, uh, you haven't cracked the top five yet. And I'm not sure when these rankings are officially updated, whether the rankings committee and board will actually solidify him uh, in that top five, number one. Number two, knowing how the UFC operates, that's not the kind of performance that's going to win you a title shot. The post-fight call-out was on the money. You can tell this guy's got charisma, he's got personality, he's not afraid to mince his words, and he's not afraid to call his shot, so to speak. But when you just kind of eke out a decision like that, when I actually thought there were opportunities for him to, to, to seal the deal, to go the extra 10, 15, 20%, maybe forget the grappling exchange and get back on onto your feet. Because I feel as though he was really getting the better of the exchanges for, for the majority of the fight with Anthony Smith. So, But all in all, look, you can't hate anyone for just trying to get that dub. Get that, get that win because that secures the second half of your paycheck, first and foremost. But it means that you keep that momentum going. And uh, you could tell on the post by interview also, Simon, what it meant uh, for him in terms of the pressure. He was talking about the pressure uh, that he was feeling from the, the countries in, in the, the Baltics uh, back home and how everyone was really kind of giving him uh, a lot of media attention with regards to this particular fight. And he kind of openly admitted that it was really kind of getting to him. So he was, you know, as it, as, as you would, right? It's a, it's a headline uh, fight in a, in a UFC main event slot on ESPN, it's the, it's the top of the sport. This is the elite of the elite. So, yeah, uh, you know, the, the big spotlight comes with some pressure. But um, good performance. But for me, um, no title shot, at least not for the time being. But, hey, how about Yuri Prochaska? Now, that's a fight that makes all the sense in the world. Uh, he's someone that the UFC are keen on. And just stylistically, I think Jerry and Alexander would put on a hell of a show. Uh, so, Simon, give me your thoughts on his performance. Uh, let me know also what you thought uh, with regards to Anthony Smith's performance. He's obviously someone that fights a lot and where he goes next and, and what you'd do uh, from a matchmaking standpoint with both those guys. Yeah, I mean, first off, Alexander Rakic is a monster at 205 pounds. He's six foot four, towering over Anthony Smith. I know Smith used to compete at 185 pounds. More on that in a little bit. Um, but Rakic is an absolute monster at, a, uh, at 205 pounds. And... Uh, I think he did what he needed to do to win. I think he was impressive enough to win on win by decision. I think uh, I think he addressed this in his post fight press conference. You know, the one thing you could sort of lay against him was it wasn't a five round fight, right? It's a main event, but it wasn't a five round fight, so we haven't seen him over five rounds yet. And he said, if the UFC wants to put him in a five round fight next, fine, he'll do that. He thinks he's ready for a title shot now. I also think he probably understands that he's not going to get that title shot yet. Got Blahovic versus uh, Dom Reyes for the belt, but also in September we have uh, Glover Teixeira versus Thiago Santos, and I think the winner of that is going to get the next shot. Um, then it's a case of we need another title eliminator to follow up on that. So uh, and and looking at the rankings and looking at stylistic matchups, you nailed it. Jury Prohaska is the fight, you know. I mean, 
stands there with his hands slung low. He's a big old lad for 205 pounds as well. And he can crack just the same as um, as uh, Alexander Rakic can. So they're both predominantly stand-up fighters. They both like to knock people out. They've both got superb records. Make that fight. Wouldn't it be great if we got to a stage where maybe we get a UFC event on European soil? Wouldn't that be nice? Those two in a headline bout in Europe would be just the sweetest booking. I think that would be absolutely perfect. Five rounds. You won't need them. Uh, you probably won't need three. You might not even need two. Because um, those two guys throw some serious heat. That would be a fantastic matchup. So uh, I think Rakic Prohaska is, is, is a good one. Another thing to bear in mind. Anthony Rumble Johnson is on his way back into the UFC 205 pound division. Um, I don't know when. He's going to be jumping back in there, but um, I think he's entering the testing pool soon. Um, and, uh, you know, he'll be back in there for next year. He's going to be a factor. So if you're Rakic, you want to be establishing your credentials as rapidly as possible because someone like Rumble is going to enter that division and he's going to be top five as soon as he declares himself valid to fight again. So, um, and he's going to he's going to be a serious problem as well, as we know. So, uh, yeah, Rakic Prohaska, you got Chashera versus Tiago Santos. And then at the top of the tree, you've got Jan Blachowicz versus Dominic Reyes. Uh, I don't know if you... Did you see the tweet from Dominic Reyes uh, today? Um, he's been giving John Jones a whole load of stick for uh, moving up to heavyweight to avoid him. Uh, he's since done a bit of a 180 and has sort of tweeted saying, I know things got a little bit crazy for a while there, but I just wanted to say, you know, thank you for pushing me to my limit. You know, I just wanted to get in there with the light heavyweight goat again. So a little bit of deference there from uh, from from uh, Dominic Reyes, which was a nice touch. And maybe, who knows, maybe we'll see them throw down in the octagon at some point in the future. Now, Anthony Smith, you mentioned Sandu. He's at a crossroads right now. I mean, this is a guy who has had 49 professional fights. That's a lot of fights. A lot of fights, and he's only 32. That's an insane schedule that he's kept over the course of his career. He fought predominantly at 185 pounds. Then uh, when he got finished by Thiago Santos, ironically, uh, at 185, he took the decision to move up. He finished uh, three contenders in a row. He finished two legends in, uh, sorry, former champions in Rashad Evans, Shogun Hua, beat a contender in Volkan Ozdemir. Boom, gets himself a title shot straight away. Loses to John Jones in a fight where he openly admits that he just didn't mentally show up for that fight. There was something wrong and he didn't really he didn't really deliver. And he's not really been the same since. Um, he had a great win over Alexander Gustafsson, but he's since dropped his last two. And now he's, from his post-fight press conference, he was talking like he may well be looking to go back down to £185. So I hope that if he does that, he does it safely and I'm sure he'll go to the UFC PI and they'll they'll give him they'll give him all the information that he needs from a from a, a body maintenance standpoint to make sure that if he moves back down he does so safely. I think he now thinks he's getting bullied a little bit. I hate to use it. maybe he doesn't think he's been bullied. Maybe that's the wrong word to use. But he's being outmuscled by bigger guys at 205 pounds and he's not able to impose his will like perhaps he can when he's at his best. And he's been away from middleweight for a while. So maybe going back down to middleweight where things might be a little bit fresher for him again. He can be the big guy in the division. He's a former title challenger at 205. 
Moving back in at 185 pounds, he picks up a big win. He's a contender straight away. So um, that sounds like that might be a good route for him. So um, as for who you match him with, well, there's you know there's a there's all manner of options you could chuck him in with at middleweight. But I mean, I would imagine someone like a Kelvin Gastelum, someone like a Derek Brunson, some bottom end of the top ten, or maybe even a Chris Weidman or someone like that. Stick him in somewhere like that, somewhere where he gets a win and it immediately sticks him in the top 10, top five. And then he's one or two wins away, potentially, from challenging for a belt. Um, That, to me, would make a lot of sense. Um, You know, he's had a lot of fights. Wouldn't hurt him to have a bit of a layoff for his own own well-being, possibly. You know, the fight with Glover Teixeira was a hard one to watch. We've spoken about it on this podcast. It was was a real beatdown. So, and he got beat pretty handily in this one as well maybe take the rest of this year off recharge your batteries get yourself down to 185 maybe fight february march next year and just have a complete reboot um and uh, see how you go but yeah tough one this weekend for anthony smith but a huge win for alexander rakic so uh big stuff at the top of that uh, at the top of that fight card we had alexa grasso sandu beat g young kim but the fight I wanted to quickly touch on before we kind of move on, the Ricardo Lamas fight with Bill Algio. We talked about Bill Algio leading in, and uh, he fought Brendan Lochnane in the Contender Series, and Brendan beat him pretty handily. And that's all I could think of through that fight. You know, Algio looked really good in that fight. He looked really good in that fight. He was very competitive. Lamas got a 10-8 in the final round, which made the scorecards look a bit more comfortable than they actually were. But I was just thinking, what if that was Brendan in there? Brendan maybe would have won that fight. And then we're talking about a British contender in the UFC featherweight division alongside the likes of Arnold Allen, you know? And all of a sudden, things are getting really interesting for the Brits. But instead, Brendan's sort of picking splinters because he can't fight for the PFL. And the guy who he beat, well, not easily, beat comfortably in the contender series has done himself no harm even though he lost. It's, It's a weird one for me, that. Yeah, and I worked with Brendan Lochnane at the PFL last year. First of all, great guy, great lad, easy to work with, gets it, understands the fight game in all aspects of it. And when I saw the performance that Bill Algio put on against Ricardo Lamas, I thought to myself, man, Brendan Lochnane could be a lot more competitive, in my opinion, in this fight. And I'd favour Lochnane to actually beat Lamas based upon what I saw on Saturday night and knowing what Lochnane's capable of. And it's just unfortunate that obviously he's with the PFL and they don't have a season this year. So he's not able to fight this year, but he's locked on the contract with those guys. And then wouldn't you know it, the guy that he beat happens to slip in through the back door because of COVID, because of this kind of you know crazy situation that we're in and UFC needs fighters to step up on short notice and to fill the gaps to make up these fight cards. So, super, super unfortunate. The other thing about this fight, post-fight uh, interview with Ricardo Lamas, it looks like it might, you know he's either going to call time or he's about to call time. I don't know if he wants to maybe fight one more time and then call it a day, or, or maybe that's it. Maybe we've seen the last of Ricardo Lamas uh, because he was you know, very revealing in his uh, post-fight interview with Paul Felder by essentially saying that this could be it. You know, So, it's always interesting when... Um, I know it's pretty raw, You've just been involved in a fist fight, and now you're you're asked to kind of answer questions and, and and all the rest of it. 
but he was he was unsure. It there wasn't like a definitive certainty. Yes, this is my last fight. You know, good night, God bless, see you later type of thing. Um, there seems to be a little bit of, uh, I guess, mulling over in terms of whether he's going to fully go ahead and commit to it. Because this is a, this is the scary thing and, and the weird thing about winning. If you know, if you're a top level athlete, let alone a top level fighter, and you just want to fight. You feel as though you can still compete and you feel as though you can still win one more or two more or three more. So it'll be interesting to see what happens there. But he's been a, he's been an absolute kind of um, pillar of that featherweight division for such a long, 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 long time. And he's kind of had his ups and downs, but he's still there, still in the UFC and, and still proving he can uh, he can compete uh, and, and win um, on his best day. So it'll be interesting to see what happens next for... Uh, the bully Ricardo Lamas. Yeah, definitely. And there's always that that iconic moment when he fought Max Holloway. Max pointed to the center of the cage in like the last ten seconds. Lamas sort of nodded at him, and then they just went absolutely hell for leather at the end of that fight. You know, Lamas, I think massively underrated by a lot of people. You know, I mean, he's he's been there or thereabouts for a long time, and uh, a very dangerous man at 145 pounds, which is what made. Bilalgo's performance, so impressive. You know, on his debut, coming in on short notice, credit to him. But I walked away from that thinking, I, I hope that Ricardo Lamas makes the right decision for himself and his family, whether that be to carry on or whether that be to retire. All the best to him. He's earned the right to make that decision. Um, secondly, good on Bill Algio stepping in, taking his chance. And even though he lost, he kind of won as well. You know, I think he proved that he can hang with a top-level guy in a short-notice fight. Give him a full camp. He could do some damage in that featherweight division. Um, but the main thing for me was the Brendan Lockdown thing. So he should be in the UFC. I, you know, the, Dana White, no matter what you say, and I understand the reasons why you know he gave and all the rest of it, Brendan Lockdown is a lot better than some of the guys who Dana White has subsequently given contracts to. That's just a fact. Um, and And... For that reason alone, it is a, a crying shame that he's not in the UFC right now. So that said, we will move on. Um, it was, it was, you know, the the the, uh, the start of the fight night was actually pretty fun. You know, we had some good stuff. Look out for Sean Brady at Worldweight, by the way. He looks like he's going to be a problem. He looked good at 170. And uh, a word for Paul Felder, by the way. How good is he getting as a co-commentator? He's just every show. Him and uh, Brendan Fitzgerald have a really good rapport going. He does really nicely in the three-man booth when he's on the bigger shows. Paul Feld is absolutely killing it uh, outside the cage. Um, and some of the things he said during during the commentary sort of almost hinted at the fact that he wasn't going to fight again. Um, so that was kind of interesting. So um, I'd like to see Felder back in there again. But um, if he doesn't, he's doing an absolutely brilliant job uh, outside the cage with his, uh, his co-commentary duty. And I hope hope that becomes a long and successful career for him. Uh, aside from uh, any any future fight endeavors he goes for, speaking of future careers and all the rest of it, we had uh, we had a bit of news just before we come uh, come on air and uh, hit hit the record button, Sandu, about Daniel Cormier. Yes, so Daniel Cormier had his first real full length. I want to call it an interview, but he is a, a co-host with Ariel Helwani. They have their show on Mondays. It's called DC and Helwani, and um, this is the first time we've kind of actually had a chance to to get some nuggets of information from him, you know, throughout the course of the conversation. 
that he had with Ariel, just kind of reflecting on the performance with Stipe Miocic, um, and also kind of just talking about his future. And um, essentially, it looks like, well, first things first, it looks like his eye's going to be okay. Uh, it doesn't look like he's going to need any surgery on, on, on his eye that, you know, he, he got poked by Stipe Miocic and it looked uh, pretty severe uh, on fight night. But an absolute, all you know, pure class, as we'd obviously expect from DC, not taking anything away from Stipe Miocic whatsoever, uh, essentially calling him the rightful winner of the fight. And um, when when asked why he didn't retire in the cage, uh, you know, and why didn't he kind of take off his gloves and leave him in there, which is kind of, I guess, what typically um, ends up being what most fighters end up doing these days when they know this is going to be their last fight. This is how classy, you know, Daniel Cormier is. He didn't want to take away from Stipe's moment, is, is what he said. He basically said, I lost the fight, Stipe won. It would be wrong of me to then own the moment, own the octagon, and use that as a platform for me to then um, signify my retirement by putting my gloves in the cage. So he kind of didn't want to take away from Stipe's you know, moment, which again, just kind of adds to the legacy of who Daniel Cormier is as a human being, first and foremost, before a fighter. And um, he told Ariel that he's not going to fight anymore. And so he's closing the door um, shut on this thing, is what he said, word for word. And uh, he's he's planning on removing himself from the USADA testing pool. So outside of us getting that confirmation when we, when we look up the USADA website and not see Daniel Cormier's name there anymore, outside of that, it looks like it's a done deal. It looks like Daniel Cormier's riding off into the sunset and it's a pretty nice sunset when you think about everything on his plate he's got his show with detail he's got his show with ariel on mondays he's got his broadcast gig with the ufc he's got his role as an analyst and now that he's not going to be uh, fighting anymore doesn't mean he's not going to be still uh, an active participant at american kickboxing academy he's still going to probably be the head wrestling coach and he's still going to be helping other fighters so he's got a lot going on and he, I'm sure he'll you know, end up doing a couple of more things just to keep himself busy. But I guess the reason we're talking about this, Simon, is now is probably the best time to reflect on Daniel Cormier, his career, his achievements, his legacy, and I guess what he's done for the sport, what he means to the sport, and what he's meant to us. So I'll uh, throw the baton over to you to kick things off here uh, when reflecting on Daniel Cormier, the fighter, as he's now, you know, heading off into retirement. Yeah, I mean, I think I think um, if there's any justice in the world, Daniel Cormier will go down as one of the all-time greats of mixed martial arts. I mean, this is a guy who, kind of an unlikely star. He came in as an alternate in the Strike Force heavyweight tournament. He was just there to make up the numbers. You know, a, a talented prospect with a good pedigree, but he wasn't expected to actually feature in the tournament. And uh, he turned up and won the thing. You know, it's it's uh, you know he beat Jeff Monson, who long long time fans will know Jeff Monson was a dangerous submission guy uh, back in the day. Dealt with him, beat Antonio Silva before Antonio Bigfoot Silva had all of his issues with regards to um, TRT being banned and things like that. He was one of the few fighters that really needed it, um, and at that point. That was that was peak Antonio Silva. He knocked him out inside a round. Then Josh Barnett, one of the best MMA wrestlers 
in heavyweight history. A guy who's been in there with a who's who of heavyweight greats over the course of his career. And Cormier threw him around threw him around the cage to win that heavyweight Grand Prix tournament. Amazing stuff. Um, he ended up joining the UFC shortly after. And straight away, he started taking names. Frank Mir, Roy Nelson. And then he joined. He went down to light heavyweight, which rose, it sort of lifted a few eyebrows at the time. And he very quickly became the guy to beat John Jones. Everyone's like, this is the guy. This is the guy who's going to beat John Jones. And then we had that, that electric rivalry, the brawl in the lobby at the MGM Grand. Um, you know, and everything that surrounded it, the, the rivalry between Jones and Cormier. Uh, Cormier, the, as classy as they come, but Jones did something with him. It, it, it was like it flicked a little switch inside DC's head and turned him into a completely different animal. He never got that win over John Jones, and that'll be the one thing that that that, that nibbles away at his career. Just like he didn't beat Kale Sanderson in his wrestling career, um, he's he had a nemesis at the peak of his wrestling career, and he had a nemesis at the peak of his mixed martial arts career. But that shouldn't define the career that Daniel Cormier had. He's beaten everybody else. And he's beaten them handily. Anthony Rumble Johnson, the most terrifying puncher in the 205-pound division. He took his best shot and then submitted him. You know, Stipe Miocic, record-breaking heavyweight. The guy who will go down in history as of right now is the greatest heavyweight in uh, UFC history. He knocked him out in a round to become only the second UFC champ champ in history. Connor did it. DC did it. Um, and, you know, he, 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 he's held the belt at 205. He's held the belt at 265. And unlike Connor, he defended them both. He's defended both the belts he's won. So that for me puts him a notch above McGregor in terms of career achievement, if you like. Um, but obviously he's gone out on a losing on a losing uh, streak, if you like, having lost back-to-back fights to Stipe. But that doesn't define his career for me. I mean, he's one of the classiest guys I've ever spoken to in the sport. I remember I first met him at UFC 189. They had a massive media day. Um, they had about 30-odd fighters on the, on, 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 the, on the schedule that day for media day. Spoke to Daniel Cormier, and uh, absolutely lovely guy. He get He got it. You know, he understands what it means to be a professional fighter and the fact that you are an independent contractor. You have to sell yourself. You are the product. Put yourself out there. Make people care about you and your fight. And yeah, he's a nice guy, but he still made people care. Um, and the other thing he does really well now, he's, he's on the other side of the cage. He shines a light on other people and he does a great job of, of building them up, whether he's training kids at Gilroy High School or working with people at AKA, or as a UFC co-commentator, just giving giving praise to people's exploits inside the cage. His Thug Rose uh, exclamation when Rose Namajunas won the title. You know, that's classic commentary. He's a great co-commentator. He's a great guy. He's a great role model for the sport. And he should go down in history as one of the, one of the all-time great figures in UFC history. And we touched upon it on last week's show. Um, he would be a great president if Dana White ever did decide, do you know what? I'm going to take a step back from this. The daily grind of this, I've been doing it for 20 years or whatever it is now. 
I'm going to take a step back. DC would be the perfect front man because he gives you every ounce of legitimacy that you could possibly want. Someone comes in and looks at the sport. They don't see Dana White, fight promoter. They'll say they'll see Daniel Cormier, Olympian, two division world champion, broadcaster, um, you know, someone who works with his community, just a classy individual. And that is the perfect guy to take over if Dana White ever decided to step down. So for me, DC is right up there as one of the one of the all time all time greats for the sport. And in UFC terms, he, he's right up there for me. Top man. Yeah, you pretty much covered it all there, Simon. Uh, took the words right out of my mouth there, and he's going to be a first ballot Hall of Famer, an absolute shoe in uh, to enter the UFC Hall of Fame. That is without question. And I mean, think about his losses. His only loss at light heavyweight was to John Jones, the, arguably the greatest of all time, definitely the greatest light heavyweight of all time. So you could make the case that Daniel Cormier was the second greatest light heavyweight in UFC slash MMA history, right? And then you look at his losses at heavyweight, it's only been to Stipe Miocic back-to-back, right? And we were having a conversation about who is the greatest heavyweight of all time last week. And it, it, we kind of said, well, you've got to put Stipe in the conversation, well, he, which is he's definitely in the conversation now after this performance. Fedor Melianenko will always be in the conversation. And then you can throw in Fabrizio Vadum into the conversation as well. And so Daniel Cormier, at worst, is top five greatest heavyweight of all time. I think he's probably around four or five um, when you really kind of really kind of take your time to create that list of all time great heavyweights. And he won championships in the UFC in two different weight classes. Right? He carried the heavy water for the UFC, and in particular. For that light heavyweight division, when John Jones was getting in all sorts of trouble, he came in, he stepped up, and he created that sense of stability. I was lucky enough to be cage side for two of his fights. The first being his win over Volkan Ozdemir in Boston at the at the Garden, beautiful arena, and also he was able to headline Madison Square Garden. What, what a you know, for, for for athletes in any walk of life, that's something that you want to do. And so I was able to be there, um, not even cage side. I was I kind of had a, an access all areas uh, badge for that day because I was working for ESPN and they were just kind of kicking off their relationship. And so I was able to walk around it literally wherever I wanted, backstage, front of house and all sorts. And to see him beat Derek Lewis and kind of take it all in, you could tell that that was a very special moment uh, for DC. And, and look at all the things that he's done for the UFC, you know, uh, stepping up on short notice to take on the Anson Silva uh, fight at UFC 200. Uh, think about some of the things that he was so close to setting up, i.e. the Brock Lesnar fight, you know. So he's someone that gets it. He understands the fight business. He understands promotion and marketing. And he also understands what it takes to be a top level athlete, uh, both in wrestling and in mixed martial arts. Uh, and I'm just glad that he's still going to be a part of the fabric of this sport and this industry moving forward in, in many facets. Like, like we mentioned, broadcaster, analyst, he's going to be involved with American Kickboxing Academy. He'll probably end up being in a lot of uh, fighters corner uh, as, as, a, as a second or third coach. Right. Um, so and, and guys like him don't grow on trees, you know. And so he, if anyone wants to look at a blueprint of someone 
especially so late in his career that he kind of got going in his in his mixed martial arts uh, run, especially getting to to the UFC. You got to just take your hat off to the guy. Um, I've been lucky enough, as of you, to have interviewed him um, on multiple occasions. Gives you all the time in the world. Gives you great answers. It's it's not a, a recycled answer that he's given to ten other different outlets. Right, so you know you're going to get something fresh and new if you get five or ten minutes to sit down and speak to the guy. And um, yeah, I guess what more can be said? I'm just glad that uh, he's also been able to decide when to call time uh, on his terms. He he basically said this is my last fight going into the situation. So this isn't exactly a reactionary retirement. He this is already set in motion before the fight. So whatever he he had left inside to 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 get out. It's done now. He got it out. He made the, the walk for the final time. He, he did media week and he went through fight night, highs and lows and all the rest of it. It's done now. So, you know, kudos to him for being able to, I guess, realize that, uh, put that plan of action into place, to, to call time on his terms because we rarely, rarely see that in, in combat sports. And, uh, yeah, I just can't wait to see um, his future contributions to this sport that we love so much. He's a, he's a class act. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, I was there for UFC 200, which should have been the biggest fight of his career. That was the, the rematch with John Jones. That was the showpiece, the biggest UFC event of all time at that point. You know, everything was building up to it. It was the T-Mobile Arena, the first show at the T-Mobile Arena. It was going to be massive. Everything had built up to it and then drops on him like a ton of bricks in fight week. Jones fails the drugs test. The biggest fight in Daniel Cormier's career is taken from him when he's at his absolute peak. He was crushed. I remember watching the footage. Uh, they, they put it on UFC Embedded uh, of Dana White telling him that the fight was off. And he borderline just crumbled in front of Dana White and just in floods of tears he still managed to get himself back up take on Anderson Silva who had stepped in on uh, on short notice to basically save to save DC's participation on the card and DC was still able to go out there and put on a winning performance on fight night having been relegated from the main event to just the, the middle of the main card so that must have been absolutely crushing for him. And then when he eventually got his rematch with Jones, he got knocked out. But then there was a big asterisk on that as well. It was turned into a no contest due to due to uh, a failed drug test. So it was it was a um, he's had ups and downs. He's had highs and lows in his life. He's had highs and lows in his career. You know, this is not someone who's just been a shooting star that's gone straight to the top. And has then fizzled out over time. He has done the full gamut of emotions throughout the course of his career. Whether it be wrestling or mixed martial arts. He's he's really gone through it. And uh, his his autobiography, if he ever writes one, will be a, a, a gripping read. I think because his, his career was a, a remarkable one. Um, one of triumph and, and, and disaster, if you like. Um, and uh, yeah, class individual, and I hope you know he he is the UFC's one of the UFC's shining stars. Even though he isn't competing anymore, he still is. And uh, the longer they keep him around, the better. Well, from one retired heavyweight to 
an iconic name when it comes to heavyweights, both in mixed martial arts, wrestling, and pro wrestling, Simon. Brock Lesnar is in the news in a big way at the moment. Uh, according to multiple outlets and multiple reports, he is out of contract with the WWE, and he is essentially a free agent. And so everyone's got an opinion. Everyone's buzzing about Brock Lesnar all of a sudden. And it's always exciting when he's in the news because you just don't know if he's going to turn up at the UFC event, if that's going to be a part of his you know, renegotiations with the WWE. But I thought it would be fun just to discuss Brock Lesnar in 2020. He's 43 years old, but he is still blockbuster material. He is still a pay-per-view attraction. Whether it's in combat sports or in pro wrestling, if Brock Lesnar's on the bill, nine times out of ten, that's enough for for, for you to tune in uh, and perhaps even put some money down if it's a, if it's a pay-per-view. And so I thought it would be just fun for us to kind of discuss Brock Lesnar, uh, look at his options. Obviously, you can always go back to the WWE, Simon. You know, just because he's out of contract doesn't mean he won't go back. He's actually resigned for them on numerous occasions. So this is nothing new. Just because he's out of contract with the WWE doesn't mean his relationship with Vince McMahon is bad or soured. Uh, it could just mean he's taking some time out due to COVID, spent some time with his family. Um, we know he's a private person. Uh, and who knows if right now in the current state of things, if signing Brock Lesnar to a handful of appearances per year even does anything for the WWE as things currently stand with no fans in attendance. It's not as if they're trying to sell out a stadium. It's not as if they're trying to sell out Madison Square Garden um, or the Staples Center in LA for their kind of marquee pay-per-view offerings. They're running shows at the Performance Center and they've just started a residency at the Amway Center and it's all digital virtual fans at the moment. So they're not selling uh, traditional tickets. So who knows what's involved in that equation? That's WWE. Now let's talk about the UFC. He's obviously fought for the UFC before. There was, you know, we just we just touched on it uh, a few minutes ago. There was almost the 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 talk and the idea and the concept of him fighting Daniel Cormier. Prior to that, John Jones called him out once upon a time. So. The one thing about Brock Lesnar, which is always interesting, he is an anomaly. We don't really know what his contractual situation is. He may be still signed to the UFC. Maybe Dana White just gave him the blessing to go and sign with the WWE and do his thing over there. But if he ever wanted to come back to combat sports, it would be under the UFC banner. Maybe there's still some agreement in place there, right? Uh, which And if that's the case, listen, it's not a bad time to want to come back and fight in the UFC. There's the potential of a John Jones fight. There's the potential of a Francis Ngannou fight. I'm sure Stipe Miocic would love to, to welcome him back, right? Who knows if they could even, you know, say Daniel Cormier, hey, 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 hang on a second. Don't remove your name from the USADA testing pool just yet. We've got Brock Lesnar on the line here. We can still make this fight happen for you if you, if you like, right? So a whole lot of possibilities and options there and then i want to just throw some fancy matchmaking some fancy booking out there let's say all things are equal he can talk to whoever he wants he can sign with anybody he wants to right now bellator is back great thumbs up there but they need a shot in the arm and with their new relationship with showtime sports and viacom cbs it looks like they're kind of getting the gears in place with a with a 
a treasure chest of money to try and compete with the UFC, which means signing free agents. It means trying to put together cards that perhaps may be, you know, somewhere down the road, a pay-per-view offering. What if they were able to sign Brock Lesnar, even if it was just a one-fight deal, because they've still got Fedor? Brock Lesnar versus Fedor Emelianenko wouldn't be the craziest batshit thing to happen in 2020 when you consider Mike Tyson's coming back to fight, you know, in a, in a couple of months against Roy Jones Jr. And it's not as if these guys are in their 50s. They're in their 40s. Yes, they're way past their prime. But once upon a time, that was the biggest thing you could ever want to see out of this sport. And it almost happened. Eventually, things couldn't get done uh, with the, uh, Dana White and the UFC and Fedor's management team. But that's another idea. And then maybe a little bit further down the list, you have the option going back into the world of pro wrestling, Simon, of AEW. AEW are the new kids on the block in terms of a promotion that was launched, or guess what, in the last couple of years. They've got this long-term deal with TNT. However, they are on pay-per-view every once in a while. I think they're holding a, a quarterly pay-per-view, if memory serves me correctly. Hey, you know, if he's out of contract with WWE and perhaps the UFC contract situation prohibits him from going to anywhere else but the UFC and they can't come to terms, mate, maybe a couple of wrestling matches with some of the, you know, AEW offer, you know, best guys, maybe a Kenny Omega would be pretty interesting. Um, so there you go, Simon. I've just re- rattled off a whole bunch of different options, um, but give me your take. Brock Lesnar, 43 years old. A free free agent in 2020. What do you think of that? A and B. Where do you think he may end up? All right. Okay. We need to. I need to preface this with one one statement. We've been here before with Brock Lesnar more than once, right? We've been we've had all the hoopla. Oh, Brock Lesnar's contracts up. Could he come back to the UFC? There's this fight. There's that fight. You know, if there was a big arena show. And a heavyweight was fighting. He'd probably be in the crowd, you know. He'd be. He'd, he'd, let's just let's just pull it back just a tad, just a tad for one minute, and then I will, I will, I will, uh, I will then start talking crazy stuff. I don't think he's coming back to MMA. I just don't think he is. I don't, I think it is such it's such a punishing thing to do. Yeah, pro wrestling is punishing. I understand it, but he wasn't on a tight schedule before. You know, he was doing. He was doing all right from a schedule perspective. He wasn't having to wrestle Monday Night Raw every every Monday and actually go through and take bumps all the time. He was normally the one throwing people around, just walking in, letting Paul Heyman do all his talking for him, and then he'd walk out again. So, you know, it's he had a relatively cushy number in the WWE. If he can get any sort of contract that, that gets close to what he was on before and he's happy with it, he'd be a mug not to take it because... You know, I think I think that's where he's at his best now. So that's me saying he probably isn't coming back to MMA. Let's suspend belief in reality for a second and say, okay, he's coming back to MMA, and we say all things are possible because I think if he was coming back to MMA, it's pretty nailed on he'll be coming back to the UFC. I don't think the UFC would allow. I'm sure there's verbiage in his original contract that gave gave them first refusal. Uh, negotiating period before he's able to go off and talk to anybody else so if we suspend that reality from from the conversation as well Bellator would be the perfect fit and let me tell you why look at the heavyweight division in Bellator 
the amount of the amount of sellable fights that you can give him. Number one, do the trilogy with Frank Mir. Number one, trilogy with Frank Mir. Those two do not get along. They never got along from day one. Mir welcomed him to the UFC with a knee bar. Brock Lesnar smashed the snot out of him in the rematch, right? Do the trilogy fight. It's there. Book it. Bobby Lashley is contracted as a Bellator fighter. He's a professional wrestler who can fight. So is Brock Lesnar. They're both absolute monsters. Put them head to head. Jake Hager is contracted as a Bellator fighter. He is a professional wrestler. He is a monster. He's also he's also got that wrestling credential from, from uh, his college days as well. That would be a fight that would sell like you wouldn't believe. And if you want to go further up the ladder, Josh Barnett is a professional wrestler. He also happens to be one of the most decorated heavyweights in the world of mixed martial arts. That is four fights off the bat that you could book with your eyes shut in Bellator. They would all work, right? That And that's without having to give Brock any of the very, 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 very top established top contenders. Keep him far away from Vitaly Minakov as you can, right? Because that man's going to end up holding the belt and he's probably going to hang on to it for a while. But, I mean, Mitrione, you could put him in Mitrione. Roy Nelson, has he fought Roy Nelson? I don't know. I don't think he has. But um, just off the top of my head, I don't think so. But uh, he's been in there. Like, yeah, I mean, the mere, you know, the mere trilogy fight just seems like an absolute gimme to me. If Mir is still up to fight, and I'm sure he will be. So if all things are possible, all avenues are, uh, are, are open and there are no contractual restrictions, Brock in Bellator is the fit. It's absolutely the fit because... Throw him in the UFC, it muddies the water. It's gonna, it's gonna upset the order of of, of things in the UFC heavyweight division. Because let's face it, Brock isn't gonna turn up in the UFC and face Blagoy Ivanov, right? He's not gonna turn up and face Alexei Olenek, right? If he's coming to the UFC, he's after Stipe Miocic, Francis Ngannou, John Jones, Daniel Cormier. They are the only fights at heavyweight. That he's going to get, and maybe not all of them, you know. He might only be interested in one or two of those. So I think from a from a, a longevity standpoint, from a, a promotional salesmanship standpoint, the Bellator move is a really, really good fit. It ain't happening, but I'd love it if it did. I think that would be, that would be awesome. And imagine, how about this? Brock Lesnar signs for Bellator. Scott Coker, with the little cogs ticking around in his head, says, do you know what? Let's have a heavyweight legends tournament. Put all of those guys in there. Get get all of the big names in there. Chuck some of the, the established former pro wrestling names in there. Just call it a heavyweight legends tournament, right? Stick them all in. Let them go. Let Brock run the bracket and see, see if we can get through. And then the winner of that gets a shot at the belt and probably gets murdered by... Vitaly Minikov or whoever's holding the belt. Um, it's uh, Ryan Bader right now. Um, but uh, I think Minikov will uh, end up holding it soon. But yeah, that's what I would do. I just, but I rewind this all the way back to the very start of my my, my little monologue here. It ain't happening. He ain't, he's going back to WWE. He's going. There's no way the WWE will let him go to AEW. 
There's no way the UFC would let him go to Bellator. And I don't see how he fits in the UFC other than for a one-off fight. And it's a one-off fight that when you can't get fans into an arena, has doesn't have the same... You're not going to get the same return on your investment because you can bet Brock's going to want a ton of money. So I don't see it happening. I don't see it happening. Well, it's going to be interesting to monitor because the one thing that Brock Lesnar does do is he brings clicks, he brings traffic. Uh, we don't have a UFC pay-per-view for a number of weeks yet. So I wouldn't be surprised if this week there are articles, there are videos on YouTube, there are podcasts speculating about who would do that. Brock Le- who would do that, right? <laughs> who would shamelessly where- do that? <laughs> to-, to debate and uh, speculate where Brock Lesnar may end up because uh, he is he is a once-in-a-generation athlete and a once-in-a-generation name, both in pro wrestling and combat sports. And keeping on the theme of heavyweights and I guess we're doing a kind of six degrees of separation here one of his former opponents someone that he actually suffered a brutal loss to uh, via liver kick Alistair the Ream Overeem aka the Demolition Man is back in action Simon this weekend it's another UFC fight night he's taking on Augusto Sakai that's the main event co-main event Ovin St. Preux versus Alonzo Menifeld, who this was supposed to take place a couple of weeks ago, uh, and OSP tested positive for COVID-19. Given what we just saw this past weekend, I'm anxious to see how this plays out this week. One thing we've kind of, it has been a bit of a concerning trend is we're getting a lot of fights um, falling out on the day, on the day, Simon, of the fight. You want to try and catch these things as early as possible and... Um, you know, look, we know that the UFC is doing their absolute best. They're going above and beyond with all their testing and all the rest of it. But it is still a little bit concerning when these test results are getting um, announced and declared the day of the fight. Still before the fight, which is a plus. Um, and it's great that they can kind of, I guess, get them out of the situation and get them quarantined as soon as possible. But um, I am still anxious about OSP uh, competing this week. And fingers, fingers and toes are crossed that it all kind of works out. Overall, this is a, a nine or ten fight card, so it's a bit of a shorter, smaller card than we're traditionally used to, uh, and that's before perhaps any missed weight cuts um, or failed weight attempts uh, or any COVID nineteen results that may kind of come into play this week. So I'm curious to see how this one uh, plays out. But um, with regards to Alistair Overeem, Simon, he's the guy that just refuses to go quietly into the night. He is still always there or thereabouts, and he's coming off a big win, a bit of an emotional win, um, actually, uh, over Walt Harris um, earlier this year. And he's once again trying to get that second win under his belt and try and get that momentum going. What's interesting is going back to, what, 2016, he just keeps alternating back-to-back wins with back-to-back losses. So going back to a win over Mark Hunt, a win over Fabrizio Verdum, a loss to Francis Ngannou, one of the most devastating knockouts uh, I've ever seen. I was actually in the building for that for that one. That was brutal. Anyway, a loss to Francis Ngannou, then a loss to Curtis Blades. He picks him back up, him, himself back up again. A win over Sergei Pavlovich, a win over Alexei Olenek. Then another brutal knockout, busted his lip wide open in gruesome fashion against Jarzinho, Rosenstruck, 
at the back end of 2019. And like I mentioned, just a couple of months ago in May, he got a win over Walt Harris. So if this is kind of MMA math playing out, he should win. Uh, and I'm actually expecting him to win this one, Simon. Uh, I think he's uh, got the experience and he's still got uh, the power and uh, the prowess uh, to get the job done. But give me your thoughts um, on this main event and the prospect of Alistair Overeem still having enough gas left in the tank to try and get a run uh, to fight for the title one more time. It's insane. He's had 65 fights in MMA. <laughs> in MMA. like He's competed in kickboxing as well. So... You know, he's rapidly approaching the 100 fight barrier. And that's something that he's talked to me about in the past, that he'd love to get to that 100 fight barrier, which is pretty scary. But to have 65 fights um, in his career is, is quite something. And he's still right up there. You know, he never, you know, when he loses, he's never down for long. You know, uh, he's been a bit of a hermit as well. A sort of, you know, he, he kind of... He kind of takes himself away and you don't hear from him. And then he comes back and he wins spectacularly. You think, well, wow, wow, Reem's back. And then, you know, just when he starts building momentum, then it drops away from him again. And, you know, he's, he's moved around a lot and changed training camps a lot. He's with the Elevation Fight Team in Colorado right now. And I think that is a great place for him to be. Um, I think he's in a really good spot there. And, you know, he looked great against Walt Harris. He looked good against Jozino Rosenstreit. He was winning that fight. Um, and it was a bit of a Hail Mary finish from uh, from Rosenstreit that beat him with just four seconds left of the fight. You know, that he was four seconds away from winning that fight, Alistair Overeem. He was winning that fight, I think. So uh, to be finished with four seconds left, that's going to sting. Uh, but he bounced back with the fight, with the uh, the win over Walt Harris. And um, yeah, I think he should beat Augusto Sakai. Sakai is decent. Um, and he's looking to sort of establish himself as a as a legitimate top 10 contender in the UFC. He's beaten some guys sort of in that sort of 10 to 15 bracket. Now he's got himself a big fish in uh, in, in Alistair Overeem. And if he beats the Ream, then, you know, Augusto Sakai is for real. And uh, I just think that when Alistair Overeem is on, there aren't many people in the world who can beat him. Even now, at this point in his career, you know, he's, he's, uh, he's 40 years of age, but he's still in prime condition despite the fact he's been knocked out 14 times from his 18 defeats. Like, if you looked at that sort of state, you say, that man shouldn't be fighting anymore. But those those defeats have been sort of relatively spaced out. You know, he's had, he's had little patches, but he's never had a sustained run of getting beat up in fights. And uh, his ability to adapt and evolve and change his game throughout his career has been what's kept him, kept him relevant in that heavyweight division. I've got him to win this fight at the weekend as well. Um, and uh, it's it's incredible to think that, you know, he's probably only one or two wins and he's knocking on the door of the championship fight again. You know, he's he's the heavyweight division is like that in the UFC. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got to keep half an eye on him, Sandu. He's born in England, for goodness sake. Yeah, Hounslow, which I actually went to Hounslow College. So every time I see Alistair Overeem's name pop up and it says from Hounslow... England I'm like that is literally my my where I grew up I went to college there literally a, a 10 minute bus journey from where I actually lived in London uh, I actually really would love to have a conversation with with Overeem just about how many years he actually spent 
uh, in the UK, in London, specifically in Hounslow? Uh, and did he kind of go back and forth when he actually did move over to the Netherlands and all the rest of it? But um, yeah, that's always a fun one because he doesn't exactly have a British accent, does he? Not so much, not so much. But I mean, um, he's always he's always been really good to the British media. I mean, you know, whenever I've talked to him, he's he's been he's been great with me. And I've you know, I remember being in in Rotterdam when he fought in Rotterdam, and uh, he was the star of the show over there. And uh, yeah, you know, he's he's one of those. He's he's one of the fighters. I think one of the first fighters to really understand self promotion in mixed martial arts. He he used to he still does it. He's got his The Ream documentary, which is still one of the best things out there. You know, it's been going for years. Go back and watch the episode. I don't even know which season it was because he's done multiple seasons. When he was doing the K1 Grand Prix tournament and he was ripping through the K1 Grand Prix tournament and you've got Michael Chevello on commentary and he's he's going in there. This was this was during his Ubreem phase where he looked like a flipping superhero. And... Um, that stuff was amazing, but then you'd you'd see him sort of getting getting his hands wrapped and sitting in a dressing room and all the rest. It I love all that stuff, absolutely love it, and he he really he really sort of helped bring you along for the ride with him, and uh, yeah, you know he's he's an icon of the sport, and uh, I was doing spinning backflip for MMA Junkie today, and I host it, so I don't get to throw my opinion in too much i end up asking the questions so but one of the questions was who who is the best uh fighter in ufc history who hasn't become a ufc champion and uh without spoiling it none of them mentioned overeem even though i, I said speaking of great fighters overeem's in the main event he hasn't won the belt yet but he's done almost everything else but none of the people on the panel mentioned him and i i, I sort of finished it off because it was the last question of the show saying it's got to be over him for me. It has to be over him. You know, he's won belts virtually everywhere he's fought. Um, and uh, he's done it in in two sports, for crying out loud, you know. He stepped into the K1 Grand Prix with the best of the best during the peak time of K1 and won the thing. That That's insane. You know, that that is absolutely insane. Like, uh, he's an absolute legend of the sport. Um it would be great to see him one day win a UFC world title. I don't know whether that chance might have slipped him by now. It would be a real Cinderella story if he did it at this stage in his career. Um, and uh, I, I assume he still thinks that's within reach because he, I'm sure he doesn't need to fight. I, I wouldn't think so. He's always had a really good UFC contract. You know, you look at some of the, the old fighter pay stories uh, after after each event. He used to get big six-figure uh, fees for his fights pretty much consistently so hopefully he's invested well he's pretty well off um, but yeah legend of the sport and uh, he, he'll he want to make one final run uh, arguably a defeat this weekend might just might just draw a line under it who knows but uh, if he beats Augusto Sakai inside the distance oh boy here we go the ream the demolition man could be uh, on his way back up to the top who knows yeah it's it's not the again the sexiest card of all time. We've spoken about this um, over the last couple of weeks. These are very top heavy cards. It's really all about main and co-main. Uh, more about the main for me uh, this week, more so than the co-main. Again, I'm really curious to see how um, that situation with OSP and, and his recent COVID nineteen positive test plays out. Um, so we'll see how that all kind of shakes out as the the week unfolds. But 
For those of you who want to help support the show, a couple of ways you can do that. For those of you listening on Apple, drop a rate and review. Really appreciate that. That, that would be massive for us. Um, and for those of you who want to get involved in the Substack, it's thebritpack.substack.com. Social media-wise, it's at MMA. Simon is at SimonHead on Twitter and at SimonHeadSport on Instagram. I am at Sandu MMA across the board, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, you name it. And uh, Simon, that kind of wraps things up for, for this week's show. It's funny, we do this every week. Before we started, we're like, yeah, it's quite a light one this week. We've done well over an hour again. This is just how we do it. And uh, yeah, hopefully you guys out there enjoyed that. We have got, uh, hopefully, a relatively relatively UK-friendly uh, fight card in terms of fewer fights. Hopefully, you know, we'll have a few finishes on that main card. Looking at some of the people on that main card, we should get a few finishes on that card. Michel Pereira is on that card, Sandu. The flying Brazilian doing all these crazy batshit mental flipping off the cage and all the rest of it against the dangerous Russian Zalim Imadeev. That'll be fun. But uh, yeah, good fight night this weekend with Dareem versus Sakai on in that main event. And uh, a bit of a slide indoors fight for those two. You know, one's, one's going to work their way back up. The other one's going to work their way down. So uh, we'll see how that one goes. Thank you to everyone for checking out the show. Uh, follow us on social media give us a bit of a plug if you listened and liked it and uh, we will be back next week to unpick the wreckage of UFC on ESPN plus 34 or UFC Vegas 9 and uh, yeah we'll be back next week <laughs>